Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Supreme Court is mulling arguments about restricted access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. How will the court likely rule? House Speaker McCarthy is in the midst of another high-stakes vote, this one around raising the national debt. Some lawmakers support his plan, others tell us why they're skeptical. The Biden campaign allegedly pushed to discredit the Hunter Biden laptop story when it first came out. This was to hurt then-President Trump's campaign. We show you how lawmakers are reacting to these allegations. President Biden mandating all federal agencies put environmental justice into their missions. But some Republicans call that another attempt to spread what they call woke ideology in the federal government. A Russian military aircraft accidentally drops a bomb on one of Russia's own cities. The blast was so powerful that it threw a car onto the roof of a building. The Supreme Court is meeting tonight to decide whether the abortion pill Mifepristone will remain widely used or be restricted. Their decision could mean big changes. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Supreme Court justices met in a private conference on Friday to weigh arguments about access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. Justice Samuel Alito issued a temporary administrative stay and placed a self-imposed Friday night deadline to decide whether access to the pill remains unchanged. He extended a Wednesday deadline. Lower court's rulings reinstated restrictions from 2000, which were significantly loosened in 2016 and in subsequent years. The justices are deciding whether reinstating the restrictions would severely disrupt access to the drug. The Biden administration filed an emergency request last week asking the high court to intervene. My thoughts are it's completely out of bounds what the judge did. If the restrictions are reinstated, patients will need three in-person doctor visits and use of the drug would be limited to the first seven weeks of pregnancy, down from the current 10 weeks. Mifepristone is used in about half of the abortions nationwide. The legal battle seems to have put the abortion issue back in the Supreme Court's lap, despite the overturn of Roe v. Wade last year. But an attorney for the plaintiffs in this case told NTD in a previous interview it's a separate issue. What's at issue here is the FDA's unlawful conduct and shirking its responsibility to keep American, America's women and girls safe from the harms of dangerous chemicals. The lawsuit states 20% of females will have an adverse event after taking chemical abortion drugs, a rate four times higher than with surgical abortion. President Biden told 23ABC the case is out of the domain of the justice system. I think it's outrageous what the court has done relative to concluding that they're going to overrule the FDA whether it's or not. Law professor Stephen Vladek said there are four possible rulings that could come out. Grant the stay, which he says means no change to Mifepristone access anytime soon. Deny the stay, a weird mixed ruling, or no ruling. He said these three options would mean big changes starting Saturday. There's also the chance that Alito will extend the stay again, which Vladek said is unlikely. Former President Trump, in a campaign statement on Thursday, said he believes states should decide abortion laws. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Turning to Speaker McCarthy's debt limit plan. Democrats as a whole oppose it, 
meaning every single Republican vote counts, and some are still showing skepticism. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has the details. I don't want to break all expectations. I want you to follow it. I want you to be on the floor. I want the anticipation. I want you to see. I want you to see as the clock goes up. That's how House Speaker Kevin McCarthy responded when pressed by reporters about whether or not he has the votes to pass his go it alone debt ceiling bill. This bill raises the nation's $31 trillion debt because the nation has maxed out on its national debt. McCarthy's bill raises the nation's debt by $1.5 trillion. This extra allowance would expire by March of 2024, setting up Congress for another vote on this hot button issue. I think their plan is very political and also incredibly pernicious, right? To have it for a short term so that we have to relitigate this right before elections. You all still had to raise the, the debt ceiling. What should be done here? The we only responsible path here is to get rid of the debt ceiling. It's a sham. It, it was designed many, many years ago to control the debt of the United States. Democrats overall oppose this bill as expected because it does aim to take back around $4.5 trillion in government spending, doing this by targeting Democrats' priorities. For example, it strips the Biden administration's funding for student loan forgiveness. It also takes back the recently granted money to the IRS, as well as taking back unspent COVID funds. It also caps the budget overall, which Republicans tell us is needed. There's pots of money there that there's money sitting in. Every, every agency, I guarantee you, every governmental department has pots of money that that money has just been sitting and accumulating, but there's been no effort because the bureaucracy wants to hold on to it. But it's not only Democrats who are taking issue with McCarthy's bill. He's also facing pushback from within his own party. For example, Representative Victoria Sparts tells us that she's eager for both parties to come together to find common ground on where the nation can save money. There is no other way to do it. If we start doubling taxes, Americans will be enslaved to the government, okay? So the reality is we have to start coming about for loopholes and fraud and abuse in the system. And if we cannot find common ground, then and there are some common ground issues. Both parties are still far apart on a solution which must be reached by June in order to avoid economic consequences. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A former CIA director testified before lawmakers on the Hunter Biden laptop story. He said the Biden campaign pushed to discredit the story weeks before the 2020 presidential election. NTD's Arian Pazdar brings you the latest. In 2020, former CIA Deputy Director Michael Morell was one of 51 former intelligence officials who signed off this well-known letter discrediting the Hunter Biden laptop story. The letter was published right after the New York Post first reported on the laptop. It said the laptop story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Now on Thursday night, Congressman Jim Jordan wrote Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who at the time was an advisor to Biden's presidential campaign. He wrote that, according to Morell, it was Blinken who first asked him to write the letter discrediting the laptop story. Jordan's message to Blinken on Thursday includes transcription of Morell's private testimony, stating, but prior to Secretary Blinken's call, you did not have any intent to write a statement? I did not. The testimony then goes on to show that one of the reasons for Morell to write the letter was to help Vice President Biden. You wanted to help the Vice President? Why? Because I wanted him to win the election. 
During a 2020 debate, President Biden used the letter to discredit then-President Trump. There are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is, has all the four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. It was later confirmed that the laptop was not part of a Russian disinformation campaign, but had been abandoned at a computer repair shop. Congressman Jordan was on Fox News on Thursday, indicating this letter started a misinformation campaign. That letter became the basis for keeping this information from the American people. Jordan is now demanding that Blinken answer a series of questions about Morrell's testimony and provide records of related communication. He gave Blinken until May 4th to provide the requested documentation. I reached out to the White House and Secretary Blinken for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. The Biden administration launches a new push for what it calls environmental justice. But Republicans fire back as the White House takes aim at the GOP's energy plan. NTD's Iris Tower brings us more from the White House. President Biden signed an executive order on Friday directing every federal agency to make the pursuit of environmental justice part of their missions. Here's what the president said at the signing ceremony. Environmental justice will become the responsibility of every single federal agency. I mean, every single federal agency. According to the White House, the order will also recognize that racism is the fundamental driver of environmental injustice. And President Biden on Friday reaffirmed his commitment to give 40 percent of all federal investment in climate change to communities that are disproportionately impacted by environmental degradation. An administration is trying to contrast its climate agenda with the GOP's energy plan, which was scaled back environmental regulations and expand oil and gas drilling. We can't let that happen. But some Republicans are firing back. Congressman Chip Roy said on Friday that environmental justice combines racial ideology with climate hysteria. All this as reports say that Biden could announce his 2024 bid as early as next Tuesday. The White House declined to comment. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, WNTD News. Meanwhile, another heavyweight Republican joins the crowded race for president in 2024. Conservative talk radio host Larry Elder announced his campaign on Fox News' Tucker Carlson tonight, yesterday. Uh, I feel I have a moral, a religious, and a patriotic duty to give back to a country that's been so good to my family and to me, and that is why I'm doing this, Tucker. Larry Elder told Tucker Carlson on Fox News Thursday that he believes crime and border security are top issues to focus on in his campaign. But other than that, he also wanted to highlight two other issues. There are a couple of things that I think our side does not spend enough time talking about. And that is the lie, the absolute disgraceful lie that the Democrats put on everything, which is that America is systemically racist. It isn't just a lie, Tucker. It's having real consequences. The police are pulling back. It's called the Ferguson effect or the George yes. Floyd effect. The second issue Elder wanted to highlight is the absence of fathers in American families. Elder said he believes it's a major factor behind the high crime rates plaguing cities like Chicago. The answer is the welfare state. We've incentivized women to marry the government. We've incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And if I do nothing else in this race but focus people on those two issues, I would have, I would have performed a service to my country. Elder is joining a crowded field of Republican candidates for president. So far, former President Trump, 
former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy are officially in the race. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is believed to be a potential candidate. The governor has been touring the country in recent weeks. His latest move is speaking at a conservative event in National Harbor, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. on Friday. Florida is the state where our shared ideas and values actually become political reality. Uh, in D.C., big conservative victories are few and far between. In Florida, we deliver big victories every single day. Republican Senator Tim Scott, former Vice President Mike Pence, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie are also considered potential candidates. On the Democrat side, the field is less crowded. So far, only Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and author Marianne Williamson have announced their bids. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Last night, Russia accidentally dropped a bomb on one of its own cities. Three people were reportedly injured in the explosion, which left a 65-foot-wide crater in the street. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. This video shows the moment a Russian Sukhoi 34 strike aircraft dropped a bomb onto the Russian city of Belgorod. There was a rumble. It sounded like a jet plane, maybe. I'm not an expert. I think the experts will figure it out. The walls shook. Reports say that no one was killed in the explosion, but three people were injured. Military experts say it was likely a powerful 1,100-pound bomb, which left a 65-foot-wide crater in the street. The force of the blast even launched this car onto the roof of this building. Shortly after the explosion, the Russian Defense Ministry said the blast was caused by a weapon that was accidentally dropped by one of its own aircraft. Meanwhile, on Friday, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and General Mark Milley met with defense leaders from around the world in Germany. Austin explained that what Ukraine needs most urgently is the ability to defend itself against Russia's air force. And Milley said that Ukraine doesn't need its own fighter jets to do that. The task uh, is to control the airspace. Uh, how you control that airspace can be done in many, many different ways. Uh, the most cost-effective, efficient and a way to do that right now for Ukraine, uh, and the fastest way to do that for Ukraine is through air defense. He explained Ukraine's air defense systems have kept Russian planes from reaching deep into Ukrainian territory. So Russian forces have resorted to shooting missiles and rockets from Russia. Uh, why is that done by the Russians? Because the Ukrainians are shooting Russian aircraft down. So the Russians are cautious to come into Ukraine because of the effective use of the Ukrainian air defense system. Austin said this about Russian Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Putin's war of choice is not the result of NATO enlargement. Putin's war is the cause of NATO's enlargement. And Ukraine now appears to have a clearer path to join the alliance. On Friday, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said this. All NATO allies have agreed that uh, Ukraine uh, will become uh, a NATO uh, member. Um, uh, but the main focus now is, of course, uh, on, uh, uh, on how to uh, ensure that Ukraine uh, prevails. Jason Perry, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Twitter has dropped the government-funded media label for several news organizations. 
and Elon Musk says he's personally paying for the blue check marks for a few celebrities. And in baseball news, Mets ace Max Scherzer is given a 10-game suspension after being ejected from Wednesday's game. We'll have the reason why when we return. A new Project Veritas video shows an undercover investigation of Gender Transition Center's practices and it's raising concerns that puberty blockers may be administered to children as young as eight. Let's see some of that footage now. The youngest we've seen come here that they are trans has been eight, nine. So we build these pages that come in at 10, they come here by themselves. We had a 14, 15 year old who um, it's still undocumented. Um, Has she been able to start, like, hormones? She just started, yes. Yeah, oh, wow. Earlier today, I spoke with the Heritage Foundation Senior Research Fellow, Jay Richards, who has covered this topic in depth. Jay, thanks so much for coming on again. Now, recent reports from Project Veritas appear to show that there are healthcare providers out there who are offering to transition preteens. What's your sense of the scope of this? Well, and so the reality, so if you're a preteen, that would be too young for things like cross-sex hormones. So you don't start cross-sex hormones until you're in puberty, but it certainly could be, it's happening um, with a puberty blocking drug. So the whole point of puberty blocking drugs is basically to freeze a child's development in place. And so if a child has not gotten to what's called Tanner stage two, they could in theory be put on puberty blockers. So we know, for instance, if you look at the, the WPATH guidelines, this international organization that advocates uh, gender ideology, they don't actually have an age minimum, so there's really no limit. And so we're quite certain that uh, at least some preteens, so in other words, kids that may be seven, eight, nine years old, are getting put on uh, puberty blockers for purposes of so-called gender-affirming care. Even when it comes to teenagers, some doctors say that a 14-year-old may be mature enough to make decisions on things like cross-sex hormones. What's your response to that? I mean, here's that is the fundamental question. I mean, the reality is that we recognize that uh, kids, certainly minors that are early in their teen years, first of all, their brains are not fully developed. We recognize they can't fully consent to things. We, they can't vote. They're not in the military. Uh, we don't let 14-year-olds drive cars. That's just a simple recognition that the human uh, reality that we develop these capacities over time. A lot of males, for instance, don't really fully develop mentally until they're about 25 years old. And so I honestly do not think that a 14-year-old can fully consent in an informed way to a procedure like this that will have lifelong consequences. And so I think that's the actual question. It's the idea that a 14-year-old could consent, say, to his or her sterilization, uh, but could not legally consent, say, to get married, um, just doesn't make any sense. And so essentially, the gender ideology is causing us to contradict standards that we maintain in every other walk of life. And where do the states stand on this? Because I know that they've been making laws more and more in one direction or the other to increase or decrease access. Could you give us an update on that? 
I mean, 2023 has been an amazing year. I mean, if you think of, of gender ideology along the, the uh, analogy of World War II, uh, a couple of years ago was Pearl Harbor. This is the year of Midway and Guadalcanal. In other words, uh, a lot of states, about a, a, at least a dozen uh, as of today, um, have passed laws that in some way restrict so-called gender-affirming care procedures for minors. And so that's this cross-sex hormones, puberty blocking uh, drugs and surgery. And so this is this is very positive development. I think probably every one of those laws will get litigated. Uh, but what I would expect to see here in the next couple of years is there's going to be a showdown between states that say, look, we're not going to do this to kids. Um, and the Department of Health and Human Services under President Biden, who is pushing this uh, with all the force that they can. And I, my hope is that we will have a national debate over the scientific evidence for these procedures, because if we can focus on the science and the evidence, um, I have no doubt about uh, which way the outcome will uh, will turn. And that's just at the moment, that's the debate that we need to have. We need to have a debate over the evidence for the benefits and costs of these procedures. And so what more do you think needs to be done now to protect children from these life-changing procedures without proper well, consultation? At the moment, we have still a minority of states that have actually done this. Like I said, 12 of the 50 states have passed a law on this this year. Um, some other states have, have done that in, in previous sessions. I think ultimately this stuff ends with major lawsuits against pediatric gender clinics. I have no doubt in my mind that that will happen uh, because the victims of these places will still be walking around. Um, but that could be five years out. And so the, the, the job for state legislators and policymakers at the moment is to try to do what we can to stop these ghoulish procedures before the lawsuits start. All right, thank you so much. Jay Richards, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. And Elon Musk said he's personally paying for the blue legacy check marks for a few celebrities who had previously complained about buying Twitter's premium service. On April 20th, Musk followed through on his longtime promise. Prominent users who declined to sign up for Twitter's blue subscription plan began losing their legacy status. But Musk also confirmed that he's paying for the accounts of William Shatner, LeBron James, and Stephen King. The three icons have been vocal about the multi-billionaire's monthly subscription plan, all previously stressed that they would never pay for it. The majority of blue check marks disappeared on Thursday, including from the accounts of former President Trump, Bill Gates, and Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. Musk acquired Twitter for $44 billion in October 2022. And Twitter has dropped the government-funded media label from the accounts of NPR, the BBC, and the CBC. Those labels led NPR and CBC to stop posting their Twitter accounts, arguing that the label didn't accurately capture their governance structure. In a BBC interview last week, Elon Musk said the social media platform was striving for accuracy and truth. The Twitter CEO said the company is editing the label to publicly fund it. The social media platform also dropped the China state-affiliated media tag on the accounts of Xinhua News. And now to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Major League Baseball has suspended Mets ace Max Scherzer 10 games following his ejection Wednesday for having a sticky foreign substance on his hand. 
The three-time Cy Young winner said the stickiness was caused by rosin, which is legal, and sweat. Scherzer had his hand checked by an umpire following the second inning who noticed it was dark and sticky and told him to wash it. After the third inning, the same umpire determined the pocket of his glove was also sticky and ordered him to switch. Before coming out for the fourth inning, the umpires checked his hands again and determined that they were somehow even worse than before and promptly ejected him. Major League Baseball started cracking down on sticky foreign substances for pitchers nearly two years ago, and Scherzer is the third to receive a suspension for it. And in the NBA, Toronto Raptors have fired head coach Nick Nurse after the team failed to reach the postseason for the second time in three years. Nurse previously led the Raptors to an NBA title in 2019. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, plenty of playoff action. First in the NBA, a triple header as Boston plays at Atlanta looking to go up 3-0. New York hosts Cleveland in a series all knotted up at 1. And Minnesota needs a win at home versus Denver to avoid an 0-3 deficit. And for you hockey fans, more playoff action as the league has four game threes tonight, starting with New York hosting Carolina while trailing 2-0. That's followed by Florida playing Boston at home with the series tied at 1. Meanwhile, the later games have Minnesota facing Dallas with the series also knotted at 1. And finally, LA hosts Edmonton in yet another series that's tied at one game apiece. And finally, for you baseball fans, nearly full slate of action tonight, highlighted by Angels two-way star Shohei Otani, who's third in the league in ERA in pitching and also tied for ninth in home runs hit with four. He pitches against the last place Kansas City Royals. And that is it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.